All right, turn to John chapter 4. It's our second week in John chapter 4. We're in a series called Encounters, looking at how Jesus encounters people and what he does as he proclaims the message of the gospel to them. So last week we saw in the story of Jesus encountering the woman at the well, a woman of Samaria, first that Jesus goes to her. He comes to this woman and he connects with this woman. He asks her for a drink. He talks to her about living water, water that's more than just fresh water. He means water as a symbol, a metaphor for everlasting life, for cleansing, for spiritual refreshment for that quench of the water and thirst that's within us and the quench that only comes from him. They talk about sin, they talk about worship, they talk about how Jesus is the Messiah. And then we left it right there. We saw just a little bit of the woman's response. Let's see the rest of the woman's response. Let's read verses 27 and we'll read a dozen or so verses. John 4, 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and came away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, her testimony, which was, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We'll stop there. Remember last week we talked about that dramatic clue that John gives us of the water pot left behind in verse 28. She leaves the water pot. Remember she went into this well area to get water, probably a mile from her town. She leaves the water pot there, leaving the very purpose that she came to the well for because she wants to go back and tell her community what she has seen and what she's been told In verse 29, she asks her community, her town, can this be the Christ? And I don't think that's doubt. I don't think she's wondering whether this is the Christ. I think she believes. I think John has given us the clue that she believes with the water pot that's left behind. She runs into town and she proclaims this. They haven't yet come to see that this is the Christ. And so she plants the seed in question form. Can this be the Christ? You decide. You come see. And of course, she tells the whole community, 
and they eventually come to believe. Verse 39, many of them came out to see Jesus and they believed because of her testimony. And then verse 42, some of them believed not because of her testimony. They heard her testimony and they built upon that. They heard from the Savior himself and they have now come to believe. In other words, her life is transformed from humiliation to boldness. Remember, she went in the middle of the day to draw water from the well when no one else was around. For all we know, she's practically a social recluse. And now she's a bold evangelist for the gospel of Jesus Christ. She's been transformed from never talking about herself to now going and talking about herself in all the right ways. She's going and saying, look, this guy told me all that I ever did. You see for yourself whether this is the Christ whether this is God in the flesh. Listen to 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This Samaritan woman is now of the chosen race. She's now in the royal priesthood. She's now a part of the holy nation. She is now a people, God's people. And she has been put in the family partly for the purpose that she would proclaim. Every Christian is called to proclaim. Every Christian is called, yes, to commune with God and to worship with God and to walk as Jesus would walk, to follow him in his ways and obey him in his word and to proclaim the excellencies. I don't know if you thought about this before, but there is a tie between worship and mission. The same instinct, the same impulse that rehears the promises of salvation and what the gospel is and how good God is and wants to respond in singing and praise to God is the same impulse that should want to proclaim who he is to those who haven't yet come to believe. So we, said, we say as a church, spreading God's glory broader and deeper. Part of our singing is to sing to each other, to spread his praise deeper in our understanding, deeper in our affections. And part of our singing, in part, is to spread his praise broader for those who haven't yet heard. And not just our singing, but to leave here and proclaim his excellencies. It's an expression of praise almost. We praise him in sometimes song. Sometimes proclamation, we praise him to others. They might join with us in praise. So I want to talk about how we do that this week. How do we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us? Now, in some ways, think of this week and last week as one message that was too big for one week. Now, sometimes we do a part one and part two of a message, right? That's not that unusual. We we, we can't get through a passage uh, enough in one week, and so we split it into two weeks. That's not that unusual to have a part one and part two, but this isn't even a part one and part two. This really is kind of a, a one big message spread over two weeks. What I mean is, a lot of times we end a message, a sermon, by giving you some practical how-tos, right? We talk about, okay, how now do we live in the 21st century in America 
like Jesus is calling his disciples to live here. What, what does this passage mean for us today? How do we do this? And we draw out three, four things. Well, I have 13 things <laughs> from John 4 that we need to get through this week. And, and those would have been kind of the end of last week's message. But that wouldn't have been right for you, right? You would have said, you get to the end of the message, and I say, okay, now let me give you 13 takeaways. You'd go, okay, good thing I brought a lunch, and you pull out. No, most of you don't bring lunches. So we didn't do that. So we're doing it this week, the 13 lessons from John 4 about how we witness. Now, uh, let me mention something about taking notes. We have a lot of points, and most of them are rather long or wordy, and, and so we don't have that much space in your sermon notes page for you to write it down, probably not enough time for you to write it out before we get to the next point. It's not usual that we have 13 points, that's why you don't have enough room for 13 points in your sermon notes. So maybe you won't even try to write down these 13 points, even if you're a vivacious note taker. So here's what I suggest you do. Uh, on the blog, the church blog this week, we will have these 13 points, and you can print them out. So you can sit back this morning, relax, don't try to write these down, just listen, digest. Maybe if you really want to take notes, you'll write down one word per each point or something like that, or you'll you know, um, write down some more personal thoughts that are coming to mind um, from what we're talking about here. But, but go to the church blog this week and, and look at these 13 points and have them in print. And while you're there, here's the hook, while you're there, sign up to have the, the DSC blog posts emailed to your inbox. It's super easy, and, and what a convenient way to kind of get more information about what's going on. We're trying our best to communicate to you about not just the events or you know, different opportunities, but kind of what's going on in the leadership, our mind, our collective mind. Um, so one of the ways we do that is with the newsletter, which I hope you sign up for. I hope you're already on that list. Uh, another way is the church blog. So go to the church blog this week, get the 13 points, then also put your email address in, and you get maybe one to three blog posts a week. No more, we won't bombard you. Um, but then they go right to your inbox and you can read follow-up resources from the sermon, sometimes clarification. Sometimes I'll say, hey, I said this in one sermon, first service, and not in the second service. Here, let me say it to you right now on the blog. And uh, so if you don't go there, you, you'll miss that. Okay, the 13 things from John 4, here's what they are. Number one, we must go to them. We must go to them. John 4, verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. He purposed to go through Samaria. It wasn't normal for Jews to go through Samaria, but Jesus purposed to go through Samaria because he knew what was there and he knew the intentions of God for God to save Samaritan sinners like this woman. So we must go out of our way. We must go to where they are. Many of them will not come to us. You know, we're called fishers of men. But we expect sometimes the fish to just jump in the boat. We need to go to where the, the fish are. We need to go to where sinners are. We need to go to where the lost are. Because many of them will not come to us. For many people in this world, you are their closest Christian contact. In fact, it might be a good assignment. For you to write down how many people you think of, you can think of in your little world where you are probably, you don't know for sure, but you're probably their closest 
Christian contact. If we had a list like that, I can think of a few in my head right now in my life. We might be more bold about talking to them about the gospel. We must go to them. We must be willing to be inconvenienced. Jesus does all this, remember, when he's tired. He's tired. Oh, yes, he he needs water, so that's why he begins the conversation by asking for water, but but he knows it's going to lead to more. It's going to lead to theological discussions. It's going to lead to the Samaritans coming in to where Jesus is and then him going back to the Samaritan village and spending two days with them. And he, he could have easily drawn up a hundred excuses for himself like I would be very prone to do. A hundred excuses why he doesn't need to begin this conversation. Not this time, not now, not under these circumstances. But he doesn't. So look for opportunities to be around non-Christians. Look for opportunities. Don't look for opportunities to protect yourself from non-Christians or to avoid non-Christians. Look for opportunities to find non-Christians. Maybe you've seen before something called the Shepherd's Guide. The first church I pastored, my first week as pastor, the first executive decision I made was to take this box of shepherd's guides that had been out on display in a table and promptly throw them in the trash. The shepherd's guide is a list of Christian businesses. So good Christians, you know, want to, I guess, avoid the world maybe or just give business to good Christians. You look in this Christian's guide and you find out where you can get a good Christian haircut. You go to that guy. Maybe take the shepherd's guide and put it in reverse. Look up where the Christian mechanics are and then find someone else to go to. We should not look to recluse ourselves from the world. We should instead look to go into the world. That's the great commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. Not wait for disciples, potential disciples to come to you and ask you questions. Go to them. Jesus said in John 17 that we are in the world. Though not of it, we are in the world. And he explicitly said to the Father in prayer, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one while they're in the world. He didn't pray that we'd be removed from the world, that we'd be a bubble within this world, but that we would be protected in the midst of all the evil and clamor and wickedness around us. We have to go to where the fish are. Secondly, we must remember that everything is a divine appointment or a God moment. All right, so I've already stepped on the toes of your shepherd's guide. Let me step on the toes of that language of divine appointment or a God moment or maybe saying it was a real God thing. You may use that kind of language from time to time. I'd ask you to reconsider I know some things look like they are specially from God. But all things are from God. Some things we can see his hand more clearly. In some ways, some circumstances, we can connect the dots. And we go, oh, this happened so that this would happen. How neat. And that's great. And it is neat. And we should give praise to God. But we shouldn't forget that no sparrow falls to the ground apart from our Father's will. No hair drops off my head apart from my father's will. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it as he wills. He's sovereign and he's good and he's wise. And so every relationship 
is God-appointed. Every conversation is a God moment. It is a real God thing. The question is whether we'll take advantage of it and we'll do what God calls us to do. Colossians 4, 5, I think, speaks to this. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Outsiders, those who haven't yet believed. Making the most of every opportunity. Make the most of every opportunity. Every conversation, every relationship is divinely appointed. So don't go waiting for the stars to align in a relationship with an unbeliever or a conversation with an unbeliever. Realize that God may be aligning stars through those very words right now that you're speaking to them and obey and do what he's called you to do, what Jesus does here. Thirdly, we should connect with people in normal ways. Verse 7, Jesus just says, give me a drink. Now, on the one hand, this isn't normal because he's a man or she's a woman and that wasn't normal in those days for them to talk. And he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan and that wasn't normal in those days. And in that way, it's not normal. But in some ways, it's very normal. Give me a drink. This whole thing starts with Jesus asking for a drink. I think what that might mean for us is that be careful of scripts. Be careful of having conversations over here that are normal, they flow, they follow certain rules of etiquette and culture. And then there are these gospel conversations that are very rigid, very formulaic, and we hope people won't get us off the formula. Have you ever had someone knock at your door and they begin to talk to you about something religious And if you're willing to stick out the conversation with them a little bit and you ask them some questions in return, you can tell that you've gotten them off their formula. You've gotten them off their script. And then they go, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Well, I can get my more mature person to come in with me next time and they'll give you those answers. And you can tell that the script just doesn't come off very well. We should be careful of that kind of script, that kind of formula. We should talk about these things in our own voice. What that means, too, is that we should be careful not to give too much too fast. You have to read people. Jesus does this. For some people, he stops at the issue of sin and judgment and basically goes no further. Until they get this, what's the point of talking about grace and redemption and forgiveness? They haven't yet seen that they need a savior. For other people, he's very quick to just touch on sin and then shoot to grace. Why? He's reading people. Now, I know it's convenient to read people when you're Jesus because you know their thoughts. (laughs) If only, right? But we can do better than we usually do. We, We should try to think of what's going on here. What are the buttons in this person's life? What's going on? We shouldn't make people feel like they've been tricked. I I don't know about you, but I've done some evangelism early on in my Christian life that I look back now and I think that was tricking people. They probably didn't like that. I've done, in a youth group, uh, in youth group days, we did a a trip to New York City to uh, learn evangelism for the first week and then you go and you witness in Manhattan and the Bronx and some tough places in New York City and so the way they did this was they'd send these kids out. I can't believe it now. 
I was 16 at the time and going and witnessing in the Bronx and literally you would step on vials of crack, used crack vials while you were going and witnessing these people in parks. Um, and, and what we would do is begin with a survey. So we say, do you mind if I bother you for a survey? And people high on crack don't care. That's one thing I learned. That's one thing I learned. They don't care. Uh, you know, they'll talk to you. And, and homeless people will love talking to you because they, they just, they're looking for a friend. That's understandable. So you start with a survey, and then it would lead to more personal questions until finally you just nailed them. And, and I could tell that at some point they'd be like, eh, why did I say yes? I shouldn't have done this. And, and I'm not sure at that point that this is very effective. It was too much, too fast, and it wasn't natural communication. I found this track in a used book that I just bought. This morning it came, it was on my desk and I opened the the book and inside was this tract. It says, you may tie your shoestrings in the morning and the undertaker will untie them that night. And then it says, prepare to meet thy God. The old English really helps, right? Prepare to meet thy God. That's Amos 4, that's in the Bible. But you know what? I grew up in church and prepare to meet thy God sounds more to me like a Clint Eastwood saying. <laughs> and I grew up in church. Prepare to meet thy God. You know, if you put Clint Eastwood in medieval times with a giant hatchet, prepare to meet thy God. That's what I think of when I see that. You might want to start out with something about water, like Jesus does, you know, or I don't know, just... Maybe take it step by step. For some, I think you should be content to only plant a seed. Maybe for some, you'll realize that your conversation with them was for no other purpose than to show them that Christians are normal because they bumped into so many weird Christians. They made it just to see that Christians laugh or that Christians like Radiohead too. I know who's Radiohead. Well, the one person who laughed can tell you. (laughs) Some people can get away with some very abrupt talk. And and if that's you, if that's natural to you, then so be it. I've been uh, with Mark Dever before, a pastor in Washington, D.C., and an author. He has a great evangelism book, which is at our resource center. I've been with him before when he's approached approached a, a, a total stranger at Subway and said, So how was the Sunday sermon? I thought, hmm, I can't believe he did that. <laughs> but that's him, and it works for him. So, you know, if you, can, if you can go up to a guy with a dog and say, hey, dog, that's G-O-D spelled backwards. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it, but great. My point is maybe be natural if that isn't natural to you. Be yourself. Use your own voice. Jesus seems to do that. But I can say this for me. Speaking personally, out of obedience to God and in hopes of others believing, I have to work on being more natural with people and more outgoing to strangers than I naturally am. We should connect with people in normal ways, both normal and connect. Fourth, we must at some point make a conscious turn toward the spiritual In verse 10, Jesus springboards from physical water to spiritual water. If you knew the gift of God and who it it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. 
Later, he goes on to make clear this isn't just fresh water. This isn't just spring water. He's talking about spiritual water, which cleanses and refreshes our souls and is the quench of our thirst, our our soul's thirst. He makes a conscious turn toward the spiritual. For many of us, most conversations will never get to a spiritual topic unless we get it there. Now, sometimes you have a, a non-Christian friend, you've, you've talked about this human thing and this natural thing and this earthly thing all over the place, right? You've had many a, a human conversation, a natural conversation, and maybe they'll bring up to you a question of spiritual significance. Nicodemus did that to Jesus. He came to Jesus and said, hey, you're a teacher, right? I got some questions. I've had some people ask me, hey, you're a pastor, right? I got some questions about my marriage, or I got some questions about you know, my depression or something like that. Maybe a friend will ask you that. But a lot of times they won't. A lot of times it'll be you who needs to make what one author calls an on-ramp to the gospel highway. An on-ramp. You need this thing that gets toward the gospel. Maybe it's only an inch toward the gospel. It's not all the way there. But you have to, at some point in usual conversation, make some sort of conscious attempt to take a somewhat natural and somewhat bold right turn. A turn to something about spiritual things. Fifth, we must talk about sin appropriately. Jesus does. In verse 16, he says, go call your husband to come here. And then later on, you know, Jesus, uh, she says, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you're right, you've got five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Talking about sin appropriately is sometimes getting specific to make a point. When people won't see their sin, we might need to, actually get specific about specific sins. Sometimes, though, camping out and picking on a specific sin doesn't accomplish what you had hoped. So maybe you have a friend that is a homosexual. And so if you touch on spiritual things, one of his first questions is, you think homosexuality is a sin? My answer to that would be, yes, I do, but I think that You're in trouble with God, not just because of your homosexuality, but because of everything else in your life that's in rebellion against God. Your life is in rebellion against God. You, as a a life, you have fallen short of his glory. Now, your sexuality is manifested in a certain way, but sexual sins are all over the place. They're all over the church, right? We could say... There are all kinds of ways of expressing our sexual brokenness in this world. And you have one. And culturally that has some, some significance for, for you and some struggles for you that doesn't have for other people. But I would almost try to get away from that issue. Not because I'm afraid or because I'm ashamed or because I don't want to represent what God says is true, but because I don't want him to think that my message is, you will be saved if you stop doing that. Just like I don't want an alcoholic to hear me say, oh, your problem is you're drinking. If you would only kick the bottle, Jesus would love you. I want them to hear loud and clear, this world is fallen and broken and it's manifesting its brokenness in various ways. 
For you, this is an idol, but let's talk about why. Jesus doesn't condemn unnecessarily. Isn't that interesting? On the one hand, he's specific. Now, you can't call someone out like this if you don't know their life. You can't say, well, I know how many girls you slept with, so there. But you might know that they slept with plenty of girls, and you could say, well, here's one example. Here's one example where God's laws have been broken. But Jesus does not condemn unnecessarily. He doesn't harp on her sin endlessly. He doesn't just say to her, no, 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 you better own the five husbands and one boyfriend thing. Come on, before I move on, you better say, yep, I know, yeah, I know that's sin. He doesn't harp on it. He moves on. Talk about sin. Talk about sin as a fellow sinner. A fellow sinner has some measure of sympathy for the heartaches of sin. Not that we soften sin or sin's judgment. But especially we as sinners should be all the more sympathetic to the heartaches within sin. Which leads, I think, to this next point, sixth. We should appeal to the emptiness of this life, just as Jesus did. The emptiness of this life and Christ as that satisfaction. Jesus sometimes talks about our condition in terms of just judgment. Sometimes he rails, like the Pharisees. By the way, Jesus is the hardest on sin when people are self-righteous. Where they won't admit that they've sinned or where they don't know that they've sinned, then Jesus keeps harping on sin. But those who know themselves to be sinners, Jesus doesn't harp on it. In fact, if anything, he's sympathetic to the complexity of it and and doesn't let them get a free pass, but he's sympathetic to the brokenness that has caused the hurt that's been caused because of their sin. In other words, he picks on the ecclesiastical, Ecclesiastes, rather, examples in their lives. We talked about that last week, Ecclesiastes strikes that chord of the emptiness of this life and the, the, the brokenness of the pursuit. It's like trying to grasp after the wind. You, you go reaching, but you can't get it. Isaiah 55 does this, where God says, Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. There, wine and milk, symbols of salvation, like Jesus was using water in John 4. And then, why do you spend your money, see it costs you, unlike the gospel, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? It doesn't fill you up, it doesn't sustain you. Why do you spend your labor on that which does not satisfy? We should appeal to the emptiness of this life like Jesus does. Especially in our day and age where where there is affluence, and where people are as depressed as ever. Talk about this issue. It's easy. Seventh, we must be wise and clever to avoid rabbit trails. This woman asks a question of Jesus about Jacob's well. You think you're you're better than Jacob? And Jesus never answers the question. On the other hand, when he talks about her sin pretty, pretty directly, specifically, she changes the subject to worship. She, enter, she enters a, a little theological debate about where to worship. And there Jesus is willing to talk about worship, but he gets more specific than geography. He, does, he says it's not about where. The Spirit is now come in a way that worship is going to be everywhere and in people's hearts and in their minds. And Jesus is ha- happy to ca- camp out on the issue of worship. 
And when it gets to the issue of him being Messiah, Messiah will come and answer all these things. Well, Jesus is happy to camp out on that issue that he is the Messiah. The point is that Jesus is proactive about where the conversation is going. You can see that. The woman answers Jesus with sometimes a question that's kind of left field. Jesus either ignores it or slightly directs it in a proper way. What that means for me is that I won't spend much time talking with a Mormon friend about whether the giants of Genesis 6 are really aliens. I won't spend much time talking with a Jehovah's Witness friend about the 144,000 witnesses in Revelation. It's just not crucial to the issue. I won't spend time talking about the age of the earth or politics necessarily with an unbeliever. So sometimes I've just said to a friend who's trying to do that, trying to direct a conversation to something that's very specific and, and off to the side, I've said, you know, to me, that's a rabbit trail and really not central to the differences between our beliefs. I'd rather talk about things that are central to our beliefs. And they say, oh, okay, well, what, what are the differences then? Well, I'm glad you asked. And that's when you talk about things that really matter. I, I've, I think, encountered people who are just willing to avoid the rabbit trails themselves if we say that that's a rabbit trail in our estimation. We have to focus on Jesus. That's the eighth thing. We must focus on Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. That's how the conversation with the woman ends, right? She says, Messiah will answer all things. Jesus says, you're right, he will. And I am he. I am the Messiah. I am God in the flesh. Jesus answers the woman that he is the yes and amen of all the promises, essentially. We must talk about Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. Ninth, we must communicate substitution and the nature of saving faith. Now, this is the one point of the 13 that isn't in the passage. Why isn't it in the passage? What I mean by substitution is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. What I mean by the nature of saving faith is that you don't work for this. To receive it, you just believe. By faith, you receive it. Jesus doesn't say that to the woman, does he? He never says anything about his death. He never says anything about how you receive the rewards of his death. Why not? Well, a few possibilities. One, this is a truncated, probably a truncated account of what was actually discussed. And maybe he did talk about his death. There are places in Luke, for instance, where he talks about his death before it happens. That he will have to suffer and die. Maybe he explained more later on. After the woman came back from her town, and maybe as he witnessed to those other Samaritans. But another reason why there's no mention of his death is that he hasn't died yet. What it means for us is that this is absolutely central to the story. So Jesus here talks to the woman about her sin, and he talks to her about some results that happen in the gospel that we worship and that we're satisfied. He skips the means, what we would call the means, how people are forgiven and reconciled to God and changed to be followers of Jesus. Now, he can do that. I, I give him permission to. <laughs> of course. We don't need to give him permission. What I mean is, for us, 
He has died, and that is the means, and people will not believe and be converted unless they hear those specific informational clues about that historic weekend, the Good Friday and the Easter Sunday. He died for sins. We cannot skip this when we proclaim Christ. You see the evolution of this in the gospel accounts where there are just hints before he died that he has to die and that his death is for sins. I think in Luke there's only one explicit reference from Jesus that he, one, has to die and that it will be a death for sins. But later on what you see is the disciples start to get it. But they don't even start to get it until after the death happens, right? So he dies, he's raised, they see him. They're wondering, why did you have to die? He communicates them why he had to die and what his death, death does and repeats, for instance, in Luke 24, this connection between his suffering and the forgiveness of sins. Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. We cannot skip substitution and the nature of saving faith. So, have some sort of plan for communicating this. What if we did breakout group right now, okay? So everyone has to partner up and then you ask each other, what is the gospel? And many of us would freeze and be like, ah, Jesus is good. 2,000 years ago, mm, Bible. I don't know. Okay, have a plan. Have a plan for communicating the basics of what you've already come to believe. You've already come to believe this. So you need to kind of distill what you already come to believe. So in 1 Corinthians 15, it's just, here is the message of first importance. Here's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. Death for sins, this was his plan. That's it. I've sometimes used three S's as one way of distilling down the gospel account. Sin, substitution, uh, salvation, the results. So the problem, the fix, and then the results of the fix. Sin, substitution, salvation. Or maybe you can use the solas that you see around the building here on, on these little signs. In, a, uh, in English, they would be in Christ alone, by, faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Maybe find a gospel nugget, a little passage that has enough of the gospel in it that they would believe and be saved just from hearing this one little bit. Second Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. Memorize it. Have a plan. Tenth, we should explain what salvation is unto in this passage, Jesus talks about worship. It's unto worship. It's not just unto the absence of hell. It's not just unto you get out of jail free. It is unto a relationship with him. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You see that? That tells us what salvation is unto 
And by the way, it's another gospel nugget. All the gospel basically in one short verse. It's not a truncated gospel that Jesus gives us. And 11th, we must be confident that the results are up to God. Notice the difference between the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, the story just kind of fizzles. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and then John goes on to record other things about John the Baptist. What happened to Nicodemus? Well, you have to go looking later on in John for the word Nicodemus, and you see him, I think it's in John 7 where he pops up again, and then at the end of the book when he's involved in caring for the body of Jesus at his burial. He clearly believes by the end of the story, but we don't know how he got from Nicodemus confused, scratching his head about being born again, to getting it and believing it and embracing Jesus as the Savior. With the woman at the well, it's immediate. He says, I'm the Messiah. She goes, and she runs into town. She leaves her water pot. She gets it immediately. We don't know how people will respond and when they will respond or if they will respond, but their response is ultimately up to God, not us. You can't make people believe. It's not based on the cleverness of your presentation, the beauty of your words, or the horror of your pre-salvation experience. You know, if you have a bad enough testimony, then surely a lot of people will believe. Hmm, no. John 3, the wind blows where it wishes, and you don't see where it's going. You only see its effects, and that's how the Spirit works. Or 1 Corinthians 3 says, Apollos planted, Paul watered, but God gave the increase. God is the one who changes hearts. We must be confident the results are up to God. Twelfth, the mission should be our food. It was Jesus' food. Remember that? When the disciples came back with food and Jesus says, I'm not hungry, and they say, what are you talking about? You sent us into town to get food. Did someone slip you a hoagie? How do you, how do you have food? Jesus tells them, my food, what sustains me right now, what enlivens me right now, what, what is my heartbeat right now, is that mission is happening. This woman just was converted. She's running into town now to tell others, this is as good as it gets. This is what I came to do. This is the heartbeat of my father. This is the work he sent me to accomplish. It's happening. The harvest is white. Like a farmer who's in the midst of farming, and he knows he's making millions from this crop. This is better than ever. He isn't concerned right then about eating. Whatever it is that just really drives your boat, just gets you crazy excited. Maybe it's fishing. When you're fishing, it doesn't matter if you haven't eaten in 10 hours or something. You'll be hungry afterwards, but in the middle of reeling in that giant bass or whatever the thing it is you fish. I don't know. I don't fish. But whatever, <laughs> whatever is really exciting to you, you're not even thinking about food in the middle of that. For Jesus, it's our conversion. You know, I, I'm tempted, I think guilt first, and then gratitude second. Sometimes I shouldn't. So I tend to think the mission should be our food. And Ryan, it's never your food. Then I remember, 
It was Jesus's food. My salvation was his food. What does this mean for me? The mission is his food. He died for this. Okay, now then gratitude makes sense. And boy, I might actually be transformed enough to go on mission with him and sometimes forget my lunch. And lastly, when in doubt, simply tell your story and invite others to examine further. It says, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Now, I don't think people can just be converted because you've said, I've changed. Or because you've said, Jesus has made a difference in my life. Or just by saying, I used to do these things and now I don't. So be careful. Here's where testimony maybe isn't enough because it doesn't talk about substitution sometimes. and doesn't talk about the nature of saving faith. But why not put them together? This woman gives her testimony. Others in scripture give their testimony. And as she gives their testimony, people are coming to believe. When in doubt, tell your story and invite others to examine further. And as you're telling your story, that's when you're also giving the facts of what you came to believe in. Don't just do the, here was I, here I used to be, like this. And then here I am now, I'm like this. And skip the middle, the very means by which there has been some change. But glorify God in your own experience by telling others what he's done for you. This is one way in which we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you're a Christian, you are a part of a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people of his own possession. And he has called you to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his glorious light.